Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Thanks, Kate. This time it's my turn to be interviewed. I was a guest on the Quality Meat Scotland podcast recently. I really enjoyed the chat. I hope you do too. Welcome to the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thanks very much for choosing to listen to this. I'm Mark Stephen. Now the whole point of this series of international QMS podcasts is to take a look at different ideas and examples from around the world to look at how other people do what we do. For example, when I think of Aberdeen Angus cattle, I tend to visualise them here, where I am, in the northeast of Scotland, with Benahir, Tapa North in the background. That's where the breed originated, and in my head, that's where they belong. Other people, however, have got different ideas. Tom Gubbins farms in Mortlake, Victoria, Australia. He's director of Timania Angus, and they're in the business of the genetic improvement of cattle. They currently have about 1,800 Angus females in the herd, with bull sales held annually, and they lease bulls too. Uh, Tom joins me now. Thanks very much for doing this, Tom. Much obliged to you. Thanks, Mark, for having me along. Oh, no bother at all. Clear something up for me. You are based in Australia, but Timania to me sounds like a Maori name. Yeah, so my mum's a Kiwi. Ah. And uh, Tamania is a family business from New Zealand. Um, it's founded in the cattle were uh, registered in 1928 um, by my grandfather. Prior to that, they were imported by a neighbour and then the family uh, purchased them many years before that. So they've been in the family for four generations now and we've been tinkering away at um, improving them all that time. Tell me about the place you've got. I mean, do you even describe it as a farm? Probably. We're on that fringe a bit. We can call ourselves a property or a farm. 2,700 hectares. We have 600 mils of rain and very reliable. It's not like how you would imagine the sort of stereotypic Australia. We always get a good rain in May and we sort of run uh, a pretty damn good spring, which... If it peters out in late or early, sort of during October, we have to set ourselves up for a fairly difficult summer because it's a long haul between there and uh, May and it's hot and dry. And so we know that it's going to rain in May, whereas a lot of Australia typically you don't know when it's going to rain. You've got a, um, a less predictable chance of your rainy season occurring. So we're a bit different to that. How do you actually manage your land then? You know, I mean, how, how do you feed the land? How do you keep it in good condition? Uh, so we've got a pretty strict grazing system where we uh, have broken the farm up into small paddocks of 18 hectares. There's 210 paddocks 
roughly there's a few bigger ones and but generally about that so we turn the animals through those paddocks pretty well managing the amount of grazing pressure and rest to make sure that we get as be- the best sort of out of the environment that we can but also look after the environment for the future by um, making sure that soil bacteria and fungi are helped and the plant is as healthy and as strong as it can be. How do you split up your beasts? I mean, how, how do you run them? Going into calving, we carve down, uh, this year we've got uh, 650 heifers due to calve and about 1,400 cows on this property here. So we go into that period, the cow, heifers are um, due to calve fortnight before the cows so they generally start and then once they finish round one so this year we've got 390 heifers due to calve in two days because we run a fixed time ai program and then after they finish first round first run cows start i'm actually not sure of the numbers but it'll be about 60 percent of that 1400 will be due to calve over a four-day period so as they carve down we group them up into groups of 250 cows and calves and they generally are a group that we can manage quite well in the cell grazing system and also that's a day's AI program for us so the seeders can go in and come out and we can run a fixed time program with 250 animals quite easily so the animals go into their 250 groups and they go all the way through joining they go out with the the bulls in 250 after you've AI'd two rounds we generally put multiple bulls out and use DNA to tell the bull's difference on the third round, which is a natural joining. The animals are weaned in those 250 animal cohort groups, and that keeps our contemporary groups together so that those animals then will stay together as weaners, male and female, obviously separated. So the bull portions about 100 to 130 or 40, and the heifer portion all get boxed together in a big mob of uh, seven or eight hundred and then um, the bulls are run in smaller groups all the way through to the left 400 days old we scan them for imosolaria fat depth um, marbling and collect their 400 day weight and at that stage we sort of finish a little bit of the performance recording intensity and um, start breaking them up into more management groups what is it you are trying to achieve with your herd um, you know we know that there's certain factors traits in animals that affect profitability so we identify those and you know we've identified about 25 of them that are fundamentally crucial for or important in the process of an animal's profitability some of the really obvious ones are birth and growth rate and fertility so they're some of the you know the key ones that we're but we we also collect structural scores on foot structures and muscle scores on eye muscle area and and so by identifying these traits as to uh, their economic importance we can if we collect data on all the individuals in large um, cohorts and genetic cohorts we can then work out which animals are performing better in those groups genotypically rather than phenotypically and then choose those animals to be the next generation of livestock that go into the nucleus herd. Describe for me your ideal beast then. I mean, what, what, what is your ideal female? Our ideal female is probably a little bit different. You know, we, we sort of like looking at beautiful females and, you know, obviously that comes into the occasion, into the, into the selection criteria. Once we've worked out 
which ones are economically more important objectively. So we have an an internal index, which an index works by um, putting all the traits together into a a mathematical process, working out how much weighting we need to put on each trait according to its economic importance in in the whole breeding process. And then those traits with their factor multiplied are all added together and that comes up with our index. So we can rank those animals according to their index, the best ranking ones, the ones that have the best economic benefit for us and our clients. And so we then rank all the animals on that and then choose the top ones of that objectively. And within that, then we've got to have a look at them to make sure that they're some, you know, of a cattle that are going to be the animals that are going to suit the suit our means. So the science of genetics is the first part of the, the selection process. And then the art of breeding is, is the final one. Tell me about objective testing. How do you do it? Well, um, objectively testing um, an animal, uh, a measurement, which is a sort of a fixed measurement that you do with a ruler or a set of scales is quite easy, really. You run them over and there's very, very little human involvement needed. And so all of our animals are electronically ID'd. They come to the yards, they run through it, weighing time, and they're all automatically weighed. um, And that weight is allocated to the RFID that is on them and the computer system, which is server-based, run in Melbourne, Sapien technology we use, it then keeps all the records aligned for us. So objectively, we measure traits that are easily measured like that. Then we've got some traits that are commonly sort of understood as subjective. um, And there are things like foot scores and temperament and things like that that need need a human to actually assess them and so what we do is we have a fairly strict rule of process and these these are these are standards are set up by australian breeding you know by the societies or by um, research facilities that come up with a descriptor for so for instance um Docility is uh, one, and there'll be um, British farmers that are very much um, understand this, but one is a very, very quiet animal, almost, you know, touch it, walk away out of the out of the handling facility when you open the front. And a five is an animal that's really dangerous that you wouldn't get in the pen with. And two, three, and four are in, you know, at a description in between that. And by doing that um, and assessing those animals, we can get a heritability on that. So it means that if you test animals from one to five in our herd and in other cooperating herds in our business, we can find that the animals that are related start to tend to get the same scores. So that basically statistically shows that there is a heritability there. So animals from common fathers, particularly fathers in this situation, because mothers have a bit of an environmental influence on the calves, but calves from common fathers have different scores or mean in the distribution. So we can uh, start to influence how quiet they are by selecting animals in the nucleus that have better genotype for temperament. You must have a massive database of information. How much of that do you pass on to your clients? Are they interested in it? Uh, so our clients pass it on to us too. We, um, we do have a system where we, we have a group of clients that are just basically very enthusiastic animal breeders that love collecting data and they 
which is a great help to our business. You know, we're sort of indebted to them, really. They collect lots of data for us and we get genotypic information out of that too. And that's really, really good for our business because it's actually information that's collected in commercial herds in commercial environments. And we often get back information about how the animals got processed and what their final meat standards Australian scores are, which tell us how well they marbled and what their fat colours were and all that sort of stuff. So all that goes in as well. So, yeah, we've, we've got a fair bit of information and um, that information is uh, sent off, off, off our server to Armidale University in New South Wales where most of that data is um, analysed and turned into genotypic um, result for us. You know, in the form of an EBV. Aside from you know the, the the obvious dialogue that you've got with other breeders, you know, which I mean, I can see being really mutually beneficial. Things like restaurateurs. I mean, across here, we we're very concerned about, or we're becoming increasingly concerned about provenance, where it came from, what's the backstory. Saber cross with you. That's happening, yeah, my word. And, um, you know, we're finding that, uh, um, particular with climate change um, and greenhouse gas emissions, that, you know, we're having to now look at ways that we can collect geno- genotypic data on greenhouse gas emissions. So there are traits that we can collect, like net feed intake that's highly correlated to the amount of methane yield in livestock, um, and so those sort of things that we need to address genetically to give us more so, better social licence. Uh, and animal welfare is similar. And so we need to be on the front foot on that. We're sort of finding in Australia that the corporate farming, beef farming businesses, which are funded by European or American shareholders, those shareholders are now demanding that the companies that they invest in have you know really really good social license and care for the environment so these are the things that are very important and becoming more and more important in our decisions see that's interesting a previous broadcast we did with a lady called diana rogers who wrote a book called sacred cow you know and basically she's making the argument for eating red meat you know and she puts great emphasis on grass-fed animals that's fine if you're in a country where grass grows readily not so easy if you're in an area where it doesn't yeah well you know there's interesting stuff about i think we're gonna have to watch this space on animals and um and their effect on the environment. There's, there's no doubt about it that at first glance, when you look at the amount of uh, greenhouse gas that comes out of the mouth of an animal and compare it to our global problem, then it looks bad. But, you know, there's many things that probably aren't taken into consideration in that whole debate. And that is that, you know, the, the carbon cycle of a cow is around 12 years, whereas the carbon cycle of carbon from the exhaust of a car is a 300 million year old carbon cycle which is polluting the atmosphere with carbon that is going to stay there forever so the sacred cow has been a fantastic document but i think to just feel that grass is good and, and feeding animals concentrates bad is not necessarily the end of the story ruminants are fundamentally fantastic at converting food that is otherwise not fit for for human consumption into something that humans can eat quite safely. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about the involvement of ruminants 
in uh, the feeding of humans in the next 50 years. If you are looking to improve your herd, if you were offering general advice to anybody around the world, what do you need to focus on? You need to really discover, first of all, what it is that makes profit, what drives the economics of the market that you're targeting and how to fit those animals into the environment that they live in. Obviously, there's very different parameters and requirements for animals as market requirements change and environments that they are being produced in vary. For instance, uh, in the US, there's some really, really cool stuff going on in altitude sickness. They've found that they can um, see blood pressure variations in the hearts of animals and genotypically it is heritable. And so they can change through selection pressure whether animals uh, cope better with altitude sickness or not. And that's something we're not going to have to worry about in Australia. But there's all sorts of different traits that you need to discover that are affecting the profitability of your business in your environment for your markets. And you need to discover them and you need to collect the data and then you need to start modifying those animals with the use of that data so that you can capitalise on the benefits and, and suppress the negatives. If you have a performance index, are there traits that are more heavily weighted than others? How does that work? That is um, a bit of a pub question that happens between breeders, I must say, because um, <laughs> and, and personally, I, I think that the weighting, seeing the weightings on the indexes is a bit dangerous because... The, in, the, there are big differences in the weightings on, on each trait in an index. The weightings on a trait in an index are calculated by working out how important financially that trait is to the end goal. And to do that, you need economics, very, very sophisticated economics and genetics coming together. And you know, dare I say that even when I was at school, statistics and genetics made me sort of glaze over a little bit, I must say. You know, it, it, they're, not, they're, not, um, they're not topics for the faint-hearted, really. So when those two things come together, basically you're saying, right, well, if marbling goes up, the animal's value goes up so considerably that it's more important than everything else. And so that's how it's balanced. Now... Um, farmers or breeders get hold of the, the actual percentages of weighting that goes on each trait and they look at it and they go, oh, I don't agree with that. And I go, well, I'm sorry, I can't not agree with it. I can't. I look at it and find it interesting, but I can't really say that my mind, my, my ability subjectively to look at those weightings and say they're right or they're wrong, I haven't got the ability to be able to do that. I, I think that's a fascinating concept that you can have too much information, too much insight. You, 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 if, 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 you, if you're looking at all the component parts and you have a predilection towards more, one more than the other, that in itself might actually confuse the issue. Whereas if you've just got that one score, that is it. Yeah, that's right. We still go and look back at the other EBVs, though, a bit. You know, when you're selecting a particular sire, for instance... On a nucleus of a thousand animals or so, the index is pretty damn good at getting the good ones at the top and the bad ones at the bottom. But even within that top group, there'll be some animals in there that have some pretty strange EBVs. And you look at it and you go, and you're completely entitled to say, I'm not going to use that one because 
it just doesn't make sense to me. And that's okay. That's different to going and saying, I'm going to tweak the actual weightings on each trait so that I get a different group of a different because a different ranking on the entire group of animals because that will send you down a rabbit hole. You'll be doing things to the index that will re-rank the animals which won't be good for your value proposition. That way madness lies. <laughs> it's, I, I sort of almost think, you know, you go, to the, you go into the mobile phone shop to buy your mobile phone. You don't pull them all apart and see how they work before you choose one, do you? No, not more than not more than once. <laughs> are there particular EBVs that are valuable to you in growing animals for our target market? Which is probably what you really want to know, and I have, I've left it out. Is that we we do cons- we do focus on breeding animals that are a long fed, high marbling, high quality restaurant trade beef. There's no more valuable beef product in the world and so why not target that and so these animals are grown out to 400 kilogram carcasses and they marble really really well and they go to the best restaurants in asia these animals are also purchased by backgrounders and and lot feeders that then own those animals for a long time from the per- from the time they purchase them from the farm to the time they get their money back by putting them in a branded box. And the, the compliance rate of those animals going into the branded box comes back to us getting the genetics right. And so it is a really important pipeline that we can influence and those processes know we can. So they come to us to ask us to make that pipeline work better for our clients so that those those processes can buy our clients' livestock. We're getting not quite consumer. Well, we are getting consumer pull through the processor. How do you actually go about taking the full herd with you? I mean, not just the top 10%. That's, that's a good question. I suppose, really, ultimately, there's only one, isn't there? There is only one animal that we really want to keep. If we've got, well, I round it to 1,000, but we've got more animals than that. We're nearly, nearly getting to 2,000. But the top 10% is what we look at. If I go into the top 10% objectively and choose the one I like, I'm going to get both. I'm going to get animals that we like looking at, and we're going to get animals that make more money. But that top 10% changes a little bit. We've got to make sure that our inbreeding coefficient is low so that um, our clients can continually buy a genetics office almost randomly and they won't get an inbreeding problem. And so we need a big, we need a lot of selection criteria behind us. Also, Australia has varying, very varying environments and it has different markets as well so high marbling grass finished product are much lighter carcasses so we do have animals that are smaller cow size that will fit that market really well and so there's a few variations i'm sort of we can make this discussion really complex about how the nucleus is actually a little bit varied in that way to sort of suit different criteria in the in the place we also have you know very very dry conditions which 
and long periods between rain and smaller animals that are more efficient and more inclined and better in those environments. And we, we have environments which, you know, where it's very reliable and have lots of rainfall and, and generally larger animals that can get a feed every day are, are more efficient in those. Have you ever actually been to Scotland? Have you seen the livestock system here? I have, yes. Okay, so you could argue, I suppose, a suckler cow is a suckler cow anywhere in the world. So how could your principles, what you're doing be applied to a Scottish farm? They can be, and they are. In uh, There are some um, Scottish farmers that do collect data and and do what I'm talking about. And so and they're there. They are a bit, it's a bit harder because large contemporary groups help. Big, large groups of animals that are in the same paddock and in the same environment and grow out together the, the variation in them, I suppose, is more likely to be genetic. So if you have lots and lots of little groups of animals that aren't necessarily being treated the same, uh, it's hard to tell whether the variation between them is genetic or not. So that's a disadvantage on smaller herd sizes and smaller mobs. But it still is achieved and, it, and it's, only a, it's only a process of slowing it down. The advantages that, sto- uh, that Scottish beef producers have is that they more intensively, their knowledge is more intense. They know more about what every animal's doing. So that can be an advantage. They can record more traits. I suppose the flaw, if I'm game to say, is, is that your beef grading system is not giving you clear information about which animals are marbling better and yielding better. And so it's very difficult in a genotypic uh, environment in Scotland to start breeding those, those important carcass traits. When you were in Scotland having a look at you know, livestock breeding here, what was your sort of almost something of an emotional reaction to it? You know, w- w- would you, did it look easier to you or harder to you just in terms of the environment? Well, you know, Scotland's a bit of a different case to the rest of Britain or the rest of Europe, really. I felt that by the time I got to Scotland, I was actually seeing animals, beef animals running in environments where they should be. So in particularly in Australia, we find that beef cattle actually run where nothing else can be done. You know, you don't run beef cattle in prime market gardening areas close to cities. You don't run beef cattle where cereal crops can be grown anymore, really. You don't run beef cattle where lambs can be produced or you can milk dairy cows because basically their best economic place or environment is running where nothing else can, where the land value is the lowest because nothing else competes with them. And there they can convert low-quality feed with, in, with their rumen into protein that is good for human diets. This land is otherwise, without a ruminant, you know, very hard to utilise. And you have a lot of that sort of country in Scotland. So I think that, um, you know, when you're running animals, beef or ruminants in country where some other farming enterprise can be done, you need to be really, really good at it to compete with them. Does your approach to genetics actually mean that you have to adopt different management practices? Yes, it does a bit. So it's a good question because uh, and it's one of, our, one of our more difficult things that we have to confront with our stockmen because you have animals in the bottom 10 percentile or 20 percentile in the group that aren't 
functioning as well, possibly because of social cohesion issues or, you know, reasons that they're out of your control while they're in a big group. And in most commercial situations, what you would do is run them through the yards and draft off the, the lesser ones or the smaller ones. You might put them on a different uh, in, a, in a different environment or on a feed ration or something or even sell them and get rid of them. But we can't do that because we need to collect information on these animals when they're 400 days old. And the ones that we harvest off that are, are doing poorly in a contemporary group are actually just as important as the ones that are doing really well. Because if we go and um, harvest out all the smaller, lesser animals, they could be more related to particular genetic lines in the herd and therefore we need to know that they're running poorly. So we need to always um, maintain those contemporary groups all the way through until, until we collect the data on them. And this, is, this makes things quite difficult. Also having between you know, eight, 900 bulls running around is quite a headache. I can imagine. Jeez, I'm trying to get my head around what it is you're trying, you're trying to achieve. Essentially, there is no end to this, is there? I mean, it's not as if you're suddenly going to find one of these days a perfect golden animal and that's it, the job's done. No, that's correct. We're finding, though, that some of the traits are starting to come into a threshold of any more is a little less and, and a little less is a little more. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, for instance, milk EBV. I don't know if we want to keep on going and going and going more and more because you, get, you grow so much milk in the cow that what do you do with it? And so the milk EBV is sort of starting to be one of those ones where you're saying, right, well, I want it in a band rather than more and more. To some extent, most of the other traits, though, are still up or down is best. We just need to make sure that we build all, we build the system so that any negatively correlating trait is included in the calculation. And, the, and, and, you know, the obvious one that we're all aware of is growth and birth weight, which was always sort of, they, there's a really quite a high correlation between growth and birth, which means that as you, if you don't put any pressure on birth weight of the calf and you just grow the animals bigger through selection, the animal's birth weights will get bigger too. Um, but if you actually start measuring the birth weight and measuring the growth rate, you can hold the birth weight down by selecting individuals that have low birth weight and high, high growth rate and only selecting those. So you can actually manipulate that correlation and find the animals which are exceptions to it. And that actually works across the entire field of EBVs. So all of the ones that we collect, they have negative and positive correlations all over the place. With virtually the except, it's not quite right, but nearly the exception of marbling, which seems to have very little negative correlations. Growth rate has negative correlation to birth weight, mature size, maturity pattern. As they grow fast, they tend to mature later so they're all costly things that we need to record and make sure that they don't get out of hand this is by way i suppose of a philosophical question you know the old expression man proposes god disposes you know whenever we try and alter you know the natural environment there's always the law of unintended consequences does that worry you absolutely i mean that's we've got to that's why we still look at them um and that's why they go out into the we get data from commercial herds. So those 
those commercial herds are our greatest critics. Uh, if we're sending them genetics which are changing their animals to, and they're not, they don't like it or there's, there's negative consequences which we haven't seen or haven't envisaged, then we find out quickly. You're, you're dead right. We're not God. But there are ways that we can use artificial breeding to change animals to fit the environments and the markets that we want them to. Tom, it's been fascinating speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. That's been good. I learned a bit about myself doing that. (laughs) Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been very informative. Tom Gubbins there from Temania Angus. And if you'd like to find out more, just look up their website. It's it's written down T-E. M-A-N-I-A Timania Angus I'm Mark Stephen, until the next podcast thanks for listening Thank you for listening to the Call to Meet Scotland podcast For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast visit qmscotland.co.uk For Scotch beef Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.